start. Good afternoon, everyone. And um, before we commence, I'm going to invite Brendan um, to make an acknowledgement to country. Yeah, um, so I just wanted to acknowledge the uh, Yalukut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting today. Uh, Yalukut Willem are part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. Uh, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted that we've got a um, small and intimate and, and um, very select and important group of uh, listeners, speakers and participants today. It's, I'm thrilled to be here with Brendan and Keg D'Souza uh, on your second recent visit to Melbourne. Um, Keg and I have known each other for many years, haven't worked together until this point, but have had many conversations about what we could do. So um, when M Pavilion and... Uh, Sam, Shepherd and Art Museum and Geelong started talking about how we might work with, I was going to say centre and periphery, but it's certainly not centre and periphery, bring people to the regions and regions to the centre. Um, I couldn't think, we couldn't think of a better person to start having these conversations with. So really delighted to be speaking to, with you this afternoon. Now, before we begin, um, on the uh, little plinths there, or the, one of our seats, there are some maps. Um, you are very welcome to get up and to get one now while we're talking. Um, you know, feel free to, to gather it and to have a look at it as we go along. Now, Keg, I, I thought that we would start with a sort of more general um, opener of a conversation. Um, obviously, you're known for your um, site-specific works, for your situational works that are often socially engaged, that um, work with communities, that often work with food. And um, I've, it's always struck me that people and those conversations are a really central part of that. How, how was it that food and peoples and that sort of way of working evolved? Um, I think just through a series of... Um, well, I guess to begin with, like, my practice sort of revolves around the politics of space. So. Um, I guess that's how that exploration with various people came about and food is such a good way, it's such a good easy avenue to talk about a lot of the themes that I'm interested in. So um, uh, class, labour, um, taste, uh, colonisation, decolonisation, um, the list goes on and food's sort of an accessible point where everyone has an in. So it's always like this way that people can... Um, begin a conversation and it's sort of, it's often an icebreaker if, if it's actually there as well and everyone has an opinion or something to say about food. And I suppose two of the sort of recent projects are projects that I often think about, the one that was at part of the Adelaide, um, the Auckland Triennial, uh, where you were actually located next to a market, weren't you? Uh, and it, wa it wasn't a, um, it was an art space but it was as much going out into those communities and the market and the associations. H how did you work out what that would look like and how it would work? What was the sort of composite parts of that different project? Well, it was... Um, the, the gallery space had a glass frontage and just outside there there was um, a, sort of a, a courtyard full of shops and most of them were um, $2 shops or... Um, like various food markets and but what was really interesting is because in the area that it is um, it was they have like there's a big Pacifica community so the things that were being sold at the markets were like uh, coconuts and green bananas and um, you know plantains and stuff that really was um, big in the Pacifica diet um, and so and then the, and the two dollar shops were all selling items such as plastic flowers and the usual stuff that you sort of see, but they were like hibiscuses and frangipanis and the tablecloths had these like tropical fruits and flowers printed on them. So it was kind of interesting that it was like the same sort of stuff you see in the $2 shops here, but really geared towards um, that community. So it had been, that culture had been appropriated, um, taken to China, mass produced and sold back to that culture in this form, this plasticated form. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that, that was kind of the... Um, the way that food became part of it with the market there and these these tablecloths because in a lot of those communities they have these um, big feasts. So um, they sell this plastic tablecloth in these rolls that were just endless. So people would just buy, you know, 10 metres and set up a big table and have these big um, feasts that would happen. And so food became, this, became something that was like 
about bringing people together and sort of relating to that community, that seemed to be the way to, that that project should unfold. And you've talked about the sort of structures that you create, and I think it's very fitting as we sit underneath one of, you know, M Pavilion's now renowned um, temporary structures that, you know, has become such a place in Melbourne for people to gather, to talk, to meet, to participate, to collaborate, to be inspired, to um, do yoga, to bring their dogs, you know, you name it. And you, you created a structure, didn't you? Yeah, so we used... I, I bought, like, hundreds of metres of this plastic tablecloth and... Um, cut it apart and sewed a big inflatable structure that was sort of based um, on the canopy that was just that was over that um, shopping um, square and that was um, designed by a Pacific architect that was shaped like a fish so it was just broken down into these sections so the inflatable sort of reflected that structure and then it became this meeting place and when I was there, I actually met some local um, Pacifica architects who were doing a lot of sort of community-based architecture and teaching workshops with um, some of the younger kids to try to get them into design and architecture. And um, so with they, they got really excited about this structure and saying, oh, it looks like a fale. It reminds me of a fale, um, which is a place where everyone gathers. And they really wanted to do a carver session, so they ended up organising a carver session and we had a, had a really amazing carver session within this structure and did a few other events, like impromptu events like that, which was really nice. So that sort of brings us to the third part of your, often your projects, doesn't it? Uh, you spend an extended period of time often working with community members, gathering stories, uh, working out what the exhibition or what the work might look like. Then there's the structure. How does that structure play out for the period that it's there? What, what do you do with it? Because it's, it's obviously a beautiful architectural structure, but that's only part of its function, isn't it? Yeah, I guess they. I guess the structures are there to create these sort of temporary platforms for discussion, debate, events to unfold within, because I'm quite interested in how being within a structure within, often within another built structure, um, and that sort of juxtaposition of these like lightweight um, temporary structures that they often are inflatable or um, made of fabric or plastic or these kind of um, materials that have a real temporality to them, um, how they can become this sort of buffer to the built structures around them. And is that um, quite curated, that program of talks and conversations, or is it quite organic and it evolves and people feel a sense of um, agency to co-opt the space to do what they want? Um, in the more, most of them have been like organised events, but um, depending, like I'm, I feel like I'm always open to suggestions. Um, but yeah, a lot often they're really um, tied into the thematic that I'm exploring within the work. So um, conversations about food and displacement, or um, you know, um, those those kind of yeah. things. Yeah. And another work that um, some of you may have seen uh, was included in the last Sydney Biennale too, which was. Two, a year and a half ago, I think now, because we were just about to have the next one. Um, tell us what you did for that. What was the approach that you took for that? Um, so we've been doing projects in um, the neighbourhood that I live in Sydney for over a decade. It's called Redfern, so it's quite a, quite a well-known neighbourhood, um, you know, a history of um, working-class struggles, Indigenous... Um, amazing history of um, Indigenous... Uh, well, where the Black Power movement was sort of came out of within Australia, along with sort of parallel um, situations around the country, um, a really important part of Sydney in itself. Um, and w when I was asked to be in it, um, the curator said, "What would you want to do if you for for, the, for your project?" And I said, I, "I like I don't know what it is, but I want to return to Redfern because I hadn't done a project there in a few years because I'd been most of the time overseas." And when I came back, there was a tent embassy set up on the block um, protesting um, a proposed commercial development that was prioritising commercial and student um, housing over the Indigenous housing that it's been designated for um, since the 70s. Um, and out, coming out of the train station, one of the first things I saw was um, a tent city set up at, set in the park across from Central Station that had... Um, that was consisted of yeah, tents and then um, 
obviously at that time, um, every every night on the news, you just see images of people, mass, masses of people being forced migrated off their lands, living in tent settlements. So, you know, the tent became this, like, you know, really powerful symbol and a metaphor for um, displacement. And so I built this structure that was made out of um, hundreds of uh, salvaged tents, secondhand and found tents, um, and pulled it apart and sewed it together to make a unified structure and within that hosted a series of events um, called the Redfern School of Displacement, which included... Um, topics such as homelessness and housing, gentrification, um, forced migration, um, language, um, enforced language as a tool of dispossession and displacement and a series of tours um, that um, I ran with the collective that I work in called Squat Space. So <clears throat> we, we began those tours over a decade ago and it seemed like the perfect point in time to sort of revisit them because we began them at a time when the area was like the gentrification in the area is really ramping up and at this point in 2016, they just announced that they were going to rezone the whole area to be 20-storey buildings. Mm -hmm. So it was about to go through this phase of, like, mega gentrification. And people had been... A lot of the public housing had been sold off, um, flagged for redevelopment. So it seemed like a really poignant time to revisit these tours. Um, and for those who had, weren't able to see the work, it was quite interesting because you walked through a sort of quite narrow, long, igloo-like entrance... A UN tent. Um, yes, you yeah, entered. Yeah. And there are a series of exit points. So it was like a big, big... I mean, it was a bit like a big igloo, wasn't it? A very beautiful, multicoloured igloo. But there was that feeling that you could go out. You didn't have to go out where you entered. And so I, I felt, um, you know, I didn't hear a lot of the talks because it happened over the period of time that it was on. And I was... I think I had a couple of visits. But the more you discussed, the more the conversations evolved the greater the potential to exit a different doorway. You know, you, you, you gave that opportunity for a multiplicity of viewpoints to, to play out and then to move in and out. Um, so it was, a, it was an incredibly generous and very beautiful, quite high-key colour um, work that, you know, we all... There were bits in it that we would all be familiar with from, you know, your local Kathmandu tent that had probably ended up somewhere, I don't know where, to, um, you know, those famous bags... Uh, that we get at $2 shops that everyone knows in their stripes. So, uh, yes, that idea of meeting place, that idea of geography as a means of fostering ideas and conversations, I think is very much something that comes out of your work. So that sort of brings us in a long roundabout way, but to Shepparton and to uh, M Pavilion and to Sam and to the project that you've been doing. Um, and just to give you a bit of a backstory, the the... The project really has taken three parts. The first was a, was a workshop um, that really was inspired by um, Rem Coolhouse um, creating this pavilion and then obviously giving his lecture uh, and thinking about regions uh, and as he talked about it, countryside uh, and what that looks like and what that means. Um, we in the countryside had some certain questions about that um, and some sort of questions about the assumptions. And I think what was really exciting was that um, it was a generous and open enough series of workshops that were held both in Shepparton and in Geelong that we could really um, interrogate that in a quite constructive and rigorous way. Um, in the spirit of generosity, we also said, if you're coming to our house, we'd like to show you our house before we start talking about it. So we had a really fabulous day, and we did similar things with Keg too. Um, taking uh, the team around to see places that we thought really made up interesting aspects of Shepparton, of its people and of its place, trying to gather that past history, the indigenous history, the migrant history, the multicultural history, um, architectural history, good and bad. There's a lot of triple-fronted brick veneer. Um, there's also really interesting modernist architecture, you know, with SPC and the whole history of... Uh, the fruiting in industry. So doing that as a sort of precursor um, and working with some fabulous people, Brendan um, came in and we had two site or we had a long-term site visit. So tell us about that first experience, that process of coming to Shepparton, and really, not really knowing how the project would evolve. Would that be fair? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty fair. Um, yeah, so... Um, I guess it was my first ex like um, 
period. It's the first time I'd actually stayed in that area. Um, I think one of the most sort of grounding experiences was um, in the first, like, day or so, um, we did um, a walk around the flats, which is um, the area where um, a lot of Indigenous people ended up after the Kamaranja walk-off in 1939 with um, Uncle Neville Atkinson. And that was really incredible, like, his, um, his like, in-depth knowledge about, because um, we were focusing on food, um, about the local food that um, was there, um, used to be there, and, you know, what, what had sort of changed over his, even just his short... Uh, like, even his lifetime was kind of um, phenomenal. Um, and, you know, due to climate change, the effects of agriculture in the area, um, uh, you know, and those those kind of things, in, in and the river being dammed. Um, so just sort of these changes and seeing, seeing how much he knew about food in that area, just doing that walk and um, kind of also that um, the history of that space and, you know, in, in between Shepparton and, and Marupna. So mm-hmm. that, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was like a really kind of grounding experience and then going from that to doing things like a factory tour of the SBC, of the ex, F, SBC factory, um, yeah, and meeting orchardists and dairy farmers and it was quite a, quite a cross-section of what makes up food culture in, in and around that sort of area. And I feel like um, pretty, pretty soon we realised that, the, you know, the Goldman Valley is obviously the food bowl of Australia, as it's often referred to, and realising pretty soon that it wasn't just Shepparton, the town, that the map had to be off. It had to sort of be a broader area to sort of really understand what the importance of Shepparton as a town is or as the population centre of that of the Goldman Valley um, really means. So when we were developing this project, you of course were in Iceland. (laughs) Uh, So there was a very interesting, um, I suppose, removed experience of trying to understand a place and learn about a place in a quite theoretical and um, uh, not so much abstract way to try and work out where you wanted to go with the questions or who you wanted to talk to or what this project might look like, did you have preconceived ideas or did you let it evolve and one conversation led to another? I think in the beginning we were just trying to come up with a plan that would um, allow a project to unfold. Um, But it's sort of, you know, due to your advice was like, you should just let let it, um, you know, see where it takes you. And I think in the end that ended up being the best way to kind of figure it out because essentially I was trying to Google information about Shepparton um, from Iceland to try to understand, to, to begin to understand a place, to know who, like, who I might want to speak to or what I might want to do, like who I might want to visit and things like that. And I think the sort of organic nature and also um, having Brendan involved, mm. um, he had some amazing connections through... Through Tatura, so the smaller town just outside yeah. Marupna as well. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty key in the area, so they have Tatura milk. And so, Shepparton as a region has got about 63,000 people living there, and it's made up of agriculture, the migrant histories, it has, it has a continuing strong Indigenous history and a history of activism and very political uh, um, agency, I think, involved in that. It's doing very interesting things through the Rambalara Netball Football Club and other organisations in terms of living culture and how education and health and a whole range of social issues form part of, you know, a well-lived life. Um, it's, it's got some big industry players, as you say, and Tatura is one of them. Uh, so milk manufacture is another big area, isn't it? Yeah, well, Tatura, like, Tatura um, Dairy was started as a co-op what, over 100 years ago and then was purchased by Bega, I think, in 2002. So we did have an amazing conversation with Paddy, who was like a fourth-generation dairy farmer who gave us an amazing Tatura plate at the end, like a commemorative plate. Um, but, yeah, he's seen the change of it being this cooperative version of dairy in the industry, which has then been purchased and kind of changed into this larger conglomerate through having it owned by Bega nowadays as well, which has also meant an increase in the amount of... So, like cows within each farm as well, because it used to be roughly 50 cows per family 
farm, but now you're looking at 200 instead and how that increase itself is also changing the shape of the land there. So there was a lot of driving and a lot of talking and a lot of um, annotating, I think, of interviews, wasn't there? Just but a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Only when um, I had heaps Only one minute, yeah. <laughs> and what, was the, what did you hope to achieve? How, what, what, what did you want to do with all of these conversations and words and what was your thinking around that? You know, was there a... There were a certain number of tangible... I don't want to use the word outcomes, but something that people could hold on to from this process of exploration and development and knowledge gathering that you were trying to, to um, work towards? Well, I guess in some ways the parameters of the project, which was like um, it was to be something that um, wasn't necessarily going to be hung in a gallery wall or, you know, or put in a gallery space. So making something like a map seem to make sense in, in that context. So it's something that could you know, it could eventually be online or um, in this, in a printed form. Um, and um, the way that the conversations, like the snippets of the conversations were just, became the most interesting thing that we had. And, you know, like Paddy was saying, he said, oh, margarine, it's like one, mole when it's heated, it's one molecule away from um, plastic, you know, and he's, you know, talking like that. But then like meeting um, Glenda, who won the vanilla slice competition, um, that, and her bakery had gotten so big they had to switch from their wood fired oven that they've been using for generations to an electric oven. She was like, oh, we don't use um, butter in our, um, in our cooking. We use margarine because it's cheaper even though they're next to, to Tura milk. So it was this kind of like, you know, these juxtapositions of these conversations and those kind of, um, like, you know, those amazing little snippets of conversations that I wanted to sh sort of share um, with people looking at this kind of map. One of the things that I found very interesting about Shepparton is that it's, it has a series of community houses that are very strongly um, culturally rooted. So there's a Filipino house, uh, there's an Africa house. Sometimes they're associated with a church, but more often they're not. Um, and you visited a number of these, obviously, and spoke and worked with the communities and saw the role that they were playing. Were there any particular ones that stood out or particular things that uh, struck you as being quite unique or different? I, I think the most striking thing is, like, Shepparton's actually kind of a... It's got a... It's quite a diverse um, town for, you know, a lot of um, Australian country towns. But in these um, houses, a lot of those people we spoke to said that they don't actually have a restaurant in town. They cook for each other either at the... Ha at at these houses or go to each other's houses and eat together. And so um, the kind of food available in the centre is not super diverse. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a few places, but it's like that they actually have these kind of more private gatherings, mm. um, which I thought was really interesting mm. in that way. And I guess um, I, don't, I don't know what, what causes that. Maybe it's the, um, the feeling that um, people aren't going to be adventurous enough to eat outside of the the usual food they eat. Or, um, I mean, in some ways, it's like what was interesting was going to like looking at um, going into a Chinese smorgasbord, not really eating it, but um, just having a look at what they were serving. And it was really, it felt like really sort of eighties Chinese smorgasbord food. Um, and they also had like hot chips and. Um, you know, dim sums and things like that, which was really kind of an interesting um, take on Chinese food. You don't often see those around, like, the city centres anymore, which, which I thought was interesting. Even going into, like, the other Chinese restaurant, we went to Yi Chi's, where they do have... The chef there was incredible. I had come and worked down in Melbourne, had learnt quite a few skills at, I think, Mavita or somewhere around there, and had gone back and wanted to make things like whole fish and cook things from, like, the, use the entire animal, but just realised from the people that they're actually selling to there that foods like that just wouldn't sell. Like, people don't even want to see a prawn tail. Like, if you're going to cook something, it's going to be lemon chicken, and that's what's going to sell in the takeaway. And that's actually quite an interesting example because we worked with the Chinese community um, on a different, on an earlier project, and um, we worked with a Chinese artist and created a hot pot, and she wrote the, created the menu... And we had this huge banquet where everyone was invited and there was a fabulous sort of participatory process um, with tofu as the sort of central because it is a ubiquitous, everyday, relatively bland um, substance 
that everyone takes and makes their own. Um, and what was interesting in getting to know um, the owners and the chef at Uchi's is that they have, and you touched on this in the project that you did, I think, in Auckland, they have a more, if you want, fine, dine, fine dining, and it's not hugely fine dining, but more experimental in terms of what you can do with food and telling stories through food. And then at the front, you've got a bain-marie that is your um, you know, Chinese takeaway that is half the price, um, and for very much that idea of come in, come out, but you're all eating from the same place. So I thought it's, it's a very interesting social, I think, leveller as well that's going on that you don't see in CBD Melbourne in quite the same way. Yeah, the, um, yeah they said that 50% of their business is the takeaway um, and their cooking. And the chef was saying, I, I don't actually, I don't, enjoy cooking lemon chicken and these kind of dishes but that's half our business so we mm. have to keep serving that that's what people want mm. yeah. so there's a pragmatic yeah. to it as ever so brendan you spent a lot of time researching driving working supporting was there um something about the experience of working and spending this quite detailed invested time in shepparton that um you were surprised by or you hadn't expected I'd say it's probably, like, the real focus on, like, that community connection through food that people were saying, but in a very kind of conservative sense in a way that, like, people wanting to eat things that they understand and expect. So, like, when we went through to Echuca, like, went to the vegan restaurant there and they can't call it vegan because if they did, no one would walk in. But if they call it plant-based and say that everything is locally sourced, taken from the farms nearby, then using it from that perspective, people are more likely to actually go in and enjoy the food, um, which is similar to, I suppose, how we're talking about, like, connection, which is the amazing Indigenous cafe there, where we had a great conversation with the people running that Felicity about how she's introducing native foods back into the menu there, but doing it through things that people are familiar with, like making emu burgers, like... Roux sausage rolls, like, crocodile somewhere in there as well, and, like, wattle seed loaf... Um, I suppose the other thing that struck me the most would be the way that people were finding these quite incredible ways of seeing the kind of conservative way of viewing food and eating and finding ways around it to get people to have those more intri like interesting things. Yeah. Mm. What about you, Keg? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of it, the way... Um, like, Aisha were from um, the... the the, plant, the vegan plant-based cafe um, was um, her heritage is Albanian and she also had this like um, you know interesting story which was like oh we didn't start an Albanian, Albanian restaurant we cooked that food at home but we never sort of um, had had that um, we never had a restaurant like that but her um, uncle owns um, Lutvi's um, kebabs which um, you know, is one of the really popular places in Shepparton. It's, like, mm -hmm. always packed and um, he's not serving Albanian food necessarily, um, but it's, you know, it's really kind of good, healthy, um, affordable food and it, he does things like he's kind of this um, uh, really key member of the community who I think about ten people said, oh, have you met him? Have you been there? Because he, he does things like goes and serves... Um, sausages to the firefighters when um, when there's a bushfire. So he just closes the restaurant and goes off and does that. So, you know, those kind of experiences are, you know, really interesting. And Aisha was also saying um, that she gets a lot of criticism from, um, or sometimes gets criticism from people saying, oh, you're not supporting our local dairy farmers because, um, you know, you're plant-based. But um, she you know, uses all the fruit and vegetables um, that from local farms. So it's these kind of interesting ways that people perceive um, establishments and have expectations of um, what people should do. Yeah, it's interesting with that with, like, the bakery that it's the only bakery I've ever been into that has an awards case filled with medals because it's one vanilla slice and then one best bread and then one best sausage roll and this kind of weird chicken, cranberry and brie pie was just one last year as well. 
and that's the one that's right down the road from Tatura Dairy and Tatura itself. They only had electricity put into that town because of the dairy industry that was there. And yet they're using margarine in all of their things. So they're not supporting local industry themselves, but because they're making it in a way that people understand and people look at a meat cut pie and be like, I'll have a pie, they're not kind of critiqued. Whereas the vegan place or plant-based restaurant, people instantly go, oh, you're not supporting the dairy industry, despite the other industries that they're looking after and the other local people that they're supporting through the farmers and the other foods. I think it's fair to say that um, quite often people are quite slow to come round to new things. Yeah. But when they do, boy, they do. When they they do, they do. (laughs) (laughs) So we're sitting here with um, these maps on our knees and I've said there are some at the front that um, Peg has put there and you're welcome to come and get one and have a look. Tell us about the map and the purpose of the map and what you... Um, I, well, just what we were talking about earlier, what you discovered in the process. Um, so I guess, you know, the map in itself... Like, using a map in itself is kind of a loaded thing and um, I guess it's one of the strategies I often... I mean, I, I trained as an architect and one of the things that you often do in architecture school is do, do mapping. And I'm quite interested in how... Um, uh, alternative mapping pro, um, processes can inform things. So obviously not the sort of straight Cartesian map because I think working in other ways where you map things is sort of, um, you know, can lead to ways that you can sort of decolonize because maps obviously have this loaded history with, um, you know, navigating the seas and um, conquering lands and um, that sort of thing. So the map in itself is, is, is sort of, you know, a key thing to think about. Um, sorry, I'm very hot. Um, what was it? But, um... Uh, so there's that aspect of mapping, obviously, that you're talking about and the decision around why you would want to create an alternative map. Yes, okay. What, what makes up the map? <laughs> yeah, okay, so, so the, back, back to it. Um, the, the key kind of um, sort of geographical signifier is obviously the river. And so the river just, after, like, after this research there, the river became this like, seemed to be like the most important thing that should be represented onto the map because it seemed to tie to everything, whether it was... Um, you know, the importance of the Yorta Yorta people who did everything from using clay balls in the fire to cook with um, and also that, that um, the, li- the livelihood of the food source, um, the, you know, the nourishment to the, um, you know, the way that this area is called um, the food bowl was because the water source sustains the agricultural industry and all those kind of industries. I mean, for anyone who hasn't been to Shepparton, it's incredibly flat and when it rains, boy, does it rain. Uh, so it does have quite a high rainfall. And as with every other part of Australia and I think many places around the world, for many years everyone turned their back on the river. It was brown and a bit like Victoria, you know, a bit like the Yarra. It was, um, you know, uh, what did they say? It flowed upside down and it wasn't particularly attractive. And we've had a massive rethinking and refocus, I think, on the potential of the river to pull various strains, communities, experiences and histories and futures together. Um, so I think it's very interesting that you talk about that the river had to be the central thing that you that pulled all of this sort of disparate um, gathering together. Yeah, there were so many stories that directly linked to the river or to water. Um, you know, the, the, ri- um, the Goulburn River, the Kaela, is obviously a way that... Um, it draws, yeah, it draws so many people together and, um, like, not just logistically and um, not in the physical sense where they're all hanging out on the banks um, near where the new Sam's going to be, mm. but, um, yeah, just that, that importance of it just seemed to be what, what needed to happen there. Mm. And I was saying, obviously, uh, we're in the process of building a new, it won't be a temporary structure, but a new art museum, and the key focus of that is... Uh, looking to the waterways, looking to the wetlands that are sustained around it. Um, So this was a great project as part of a conversation around celebrating the various uh, geographic and cultural aspects that that are are part of the land that we inhabit, that we're we're part of. Um, Just read out some of the little... I thought reading out some of the little texts... um, There was one about the vanilla slice that you've spoken about... 
that was particularly poignant. Now I have to put my glasses on because I can't read it. Um, so after winning the vanilla slice comp, the bakery got so busy we had to switch from the old wood fire um, to an electric oven. And I really like how, I also really like how um, Glenda from um, Tutura Hot Bread um, spoke about how they have like a think tank of eight bakeries in the area which is kind of incredible because then um, we found out that, the, you know, that involved, like, inno innovative recipes and um, her innovation was changing the recipe for the brie, um, cranberry and steak Ste pie to... Chicken, brie and cranberry, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it w used to be um, camembert and that was, like, the kind of the level of innovation where the brie was... <laughs> the camembert was switched to the brie, which I thought was really amazing. Um, that this was this was the thing to, um, she said it would melt better and be more gooey. Um, Great. Yeah, right. yeah. And I think that's actually really it's an interesting little aspect about Shepherd and you know often it's seen as they had huge industry around soft fruits. The soft fruit um, industry collapsed um, and SPC lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands, you know, lots of jobs. And it was a bad news story, you know. Um, what's really interesting in the story that often isn't told is about innovation and change and this idea of coming with nothing and creating something um, that can then be co-opted and used in other purposes. So in a tiny way, but in a quite significant way, the swapping of brie for camembert or camembert for brie is, you know, it, it sort of is like a little microcosm of that. I think that those little stories that you've captured really do that in a quite interesting way. There's one here that I was particularly taken by, um, and it says that Rumbalara, we always make sure there is fresh fruit for, out for the kids. Now, I think that that's really interesting. Rumbalara Netball Football Club it plays this really pivotal role in Shepparton um, in fostering a sense of pride and knowledge of um, identity, good eating habits. They um, help some of the kids who have got their first jobs work out how to run a bank account and how to save money. And the girls are doing it so well that the boys now want to do it too. And th so it's this sort of really interesting hybrid role that a sporting community can play in a much more social way that I think often happens in regional oh. countries. Yeah, it was incredible visiting there because it's like, uh, it's, you know, it's called a football netball club, but then you go there and there's like people having meetings about another project. It's obviously a kind of community centre, um, you know, it branches out, it, it serves all these different roles. Um, and that was kind of incredible that a football, net, like the title of a football netball club would be that. It's, it's a pretty incredible place in that way. So what happens, the, the final part of this project occurs on Tuesday this week. What's going to happen then? Um, we're going to have a launch of um, the map to sort of invite everyone who I spoke to um, to the connection. So Felicia Dean is... What's um, the connection? Okay, so did you mention that? No. Um, so the connection is a cafe that um, a Yoda Yoda woman called Felicia Dean um, owns there. And meeting her was really incredible because she was... Um, she spoke so much just about food and, like, the importance of food in, like, society um, and, it, and the importance of food to her and how it's, like, food for her, cooking for her really comes from the heart. But, she, you know, she, would, she was saying things like food always brings people together. It, um, you know, if there's a big meeting um, that food grounds people um, when, you know, you have to make an important decision. She said all these, like, really kind of um, really important things that... Um, that why she, why she started this cafe and she said she'd never um, owned a business like that so she was just kind of learning how to how to manage that and she'd go from you know having lots of money um, one week to or one month to um, you know trying to like figure out how to um, manage for the next and like that kind of those kind of ebbs and flows of uh, small business and trying to figure out that and but knowing that that process of doing that and the importance of um, running that cafe um, is like the importance of that to her um, and so it made sense that that the, the connection which is on um, is situated on the flats um, which we mentioned um, the importance of that location the importance of her and that cafe as a kind of meeting space as well um, so that's another place that she says that she wants that place to be where people can come together you know if there's say if there's a funeral then everyone afterwards can gather and um, you know eat food and be together and um, there's um, an elder who's um, 
another, another member of their community is um, recording his stories there. So they often sit on the couch in there and um, he has his stories recorded and all these like really important things happen there. So we're going to have a um, launch of the map and she's going to um, cook some food. Um, and she, you know, even when we went to visit her, she like whipped up some wattle seed um, muffins for us and it was just to have a, you know, we're just going there to meet her and she's like, she's like, you know, do you want some tea and some muffins? She's really like warm and hospitable and incredible um, and so generous with her stories and um, time and everything. So it just needed to be the place where um, people do come together as, as, you know, her intention is. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what's going to happen on Tuesday. She right. also mentioned about connections though, about how when Felicia started the cafe and is now using the funds from that to try and support the Rumbelara Football Club because she doesn't want the football club to have to be supported through tax funds or any other kind of income support because she wants to show that particularly Yorta Yorta people and the way that their community is coming together are actually supporting themselves and looking after themselves. So uses the cafe as this meeting space but then also uh, like financial viability for the community. Mm. And, I mean, it, it sort of goes back to the point that everyone is multiple things. So she's the chair of the Kayla Institute, yeah. which plays a really important role, not just in terms of supporting Kayla Arts, which is the local uh, community arts centre, but also working with Rumbalara in terms of education, health outcomes, a lot of very important social things. So that will happen on Tuesday. And are you going to how are you going to have all these various people from different parts of the communities that you've met and talked to who are invited to share, to break bread, or to do whatever? Um, how how will that play out for those that can't come and can't be with it? And you're all welcome to come. Um, well, I I hope that like in the same way that these these are kind of like you know. It, it, it's also strange for me to do a project where the conversations are kind of separated and they were all, like, one-on-one. -on -one. Like, I don't normally work in that form. So bringing them all together on in this kind of, like, visual cacophony, if you will, um, onto this is kind of an interesting experience for, you know, an outsider to sort of read that. But as someone who's their voices represented in here to hear, see all those other voices, but then to hopefully meet some of those other people and... Um, you know, to point out their quotes and just have a conversation about, you know, their their connection to food. Yeah. And that's hopefully what will happen. But. So, for those of you who are in Shepparton on Tuesday afternoon, you're all welcome to come. And for those that aren't, I think it's probably watch the M Pavilion website and see how it unfolds. I um, have... I've really loved working with you both and with M Pavilion on this project. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this final part of the project happens, you know, and concludes. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what form this map takes. We have been, while well, I've been at Shepparton, creating an alternative guide to Shepparton so that when we have anyone who comes and visits and in, is involved in the gallery and, and the collection and the museum, um, they can build up a sense of the things that people have found fascinating or that they love or that's part of their everyday life or the things that are part of their heart when they come. So it's, um, this will very much form part of a very growing and rich and, and disparate in a really good way, I think, sense of layering of this experience of, of this quite unique part of Victoria. In the last few minutes, I thought we should throw it over to our um, audience and see if there's anything that anyone wanted to ask, particularly Keg or Brendan, about the project, the experience, or your work more widely. Do we have any questions, any comments? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. How do you how do you ensure that you're working with authentic publics? Pardon? Authentic publics. Like this is a public event, but it's probably not an authentic public. You know, if we were to do a straw poll right now, we'd probably find that everyone here is actually quite quite similar. It's it's selective. So how do you ensure that you're actually working with an authentic public? Um, I don't think you can, especially when. Um I often work through like art institutions and art organisations, so I think um, through that way there's an expectation that a lot of the audience is um, through those networks. But it depends on which projects, like 
depends on what projects I do. So, for example, in Redfern, that's an example where in the audience it, it wasn't... It was predominantly not a Biennale crowd for some of the events, which was really interesting um, to sort of bring the, the kind of... The, less, the, the lesser amount of the people there... Sorry about my sentences. Um, uh, to an audience that was very much local um, and sort of place the art, the, uh, the art people, if you will, into that neighbourhood and that community. And those conversations were... That was really reflected in the conversation. So, you know, a conversation on homelessness and housing was... Um, a lot of the comments were about really real issues and by people who were, like, in the tenants' union or setting up um, a community land trust and doing um, actual, like, and on-the-ground activist work. Um, so in that case, it's because I've spent so much time in that area and built those connections that that can unfold. But um, I often travel for my projects and when you do that, you're sort of reliant on your hosts in a lot of ways to, for them to sort of invite their broader networks that hopefully extend, usually through people who work at art institutions, they have other people who work on the, who are in the peripheries maybe who might not normally come to their events, who I end up meeting or um, through serendipity come along to that. But I think it's really difficult um, working to try um, get in, how did you say it, an authentic public um, can I, when, yeah. Can I add to that? Because that's something that we talked a lot about um, and mm. particularly with M Pavilion in the development of this project because I was very keen that there was a real experience of regional Victoria or regional Australia as well. And I think that a lot of people um, have quite interesting perceptions and misconceptions uh, and that idea of trying to give um, a series of experiences that were not definitive but were actually real um, was one that we talked a lot about. The other particular thing in Shepparton is that because it has um, uh, a very interesting cross-section of socio-economic, um, uh, you know, cross-section of Australia, um, a, a very interesting migrant, very interesting Indigenous and, you know, very strong Indigenous history, how would we work with um, these various groups and them not feel that it was yet another person who was helicoptering in with very little research or very little experience or investedness, ongoing investedness. Uh, and as an art museum, we have built up very strong and we continue to work very closely with various community groups in a way that is sustained and that they don't feel that they're being taken advantage of um, as a new artist comes in or as a new project comes in. So it was a... We worked very closely on that so that we weren't burnt and our reputation wasn't damaged and that... Um, those that were involved in the project would get something out of it too. So there was a real sense of generosity about it, I think, that was very important. And a sense of creating a safe space. We talk a lot about safe spaces that are inside and outside an art museum, which historically in a regional context is often seen as elitist. Um, so problem number one. And yet the way that we're working, the artists that we're working with, are often about creating these platforms or spaces for divergent voices. So I think it's a really good question and it's something that was very much part of our discussions throughout the whole project. I would kind of say on that as well that the way that the connections for this particular project took place was very organic development, very much something that Rebecca asked us for. So not to go into a space and have expectations of who we're going to meet and how we're going to meet them, but actually meeting with someone through that connection of that Gona Lubfiz, which is the Afghan, uh, the um, Albanian restaurant, finding out that his niece runs a vegan cafe in Echuca, so going to Echuca from that, finding out that her cousin runs a pear orchardry and also a cidery, so calling him to go and visit him at the cider space, going to Tatura and getting all the connections there through the woman that runs the news agent, and through that then finding out that she was friends with someone from family connections who'd been a fifth-generation dairy farmer that now worked at Tatura Dairy, who then was friends with the person that worked at the bakery. So it's just allowing those connections to take place themselves through the people that we're meeting rather than actually trying to constrict who we're meeting to based on our own parameters and expectations. King, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about how you establish parameters around your projects. I think... It's been great to hear about how you've made the Shepparton project come together, but 
I mean, there's so many layers of, of food, community context that you have to negotiate in a project like that. Can you maybe unfold for us a little bit more about this idea of, of how you establish the parameters of a project, um, the role that chance plays, um, that kind of thing? Um, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of chance serendipity in, like, all, all the way that these, this, the nature of these kind of projects happen. So, um, as Brendan sort of spoke of people meeting people, meeting people, it's like we didn't sort of door knock on every restaurant in Shepparton and make a kind of Cartesian map of um, where restaurants are and things like that. It was more very organic and um, I think there was just, it's, it's sort of knowing when you, you kind of wanted more, more voices to come through in this kind of mapping project and to a point where, I mean, you could go on for, for months um, talking to people about food and building this up to even more, but um, there's this parameter of time as, as one aspect that's a very real aspect. So, you know, how much time are you spending in Shepparton and how many people can you meet in a day? And often it was like six people in a day. So it was like one to one, you know, going all around that place. Um, so I think that's a, like a real logistic kind of parameter. There's, you know, there's also this feeling of, in a lot of my projects, you sometimes I've met the person that I end up working with and inspiring a whole project in the first day. Um, and through that, that just happens organically. There's not, I think each sort of situation sets its, seem, the project seems to set its own parameters um, besides the logistical ones of um, the scope that you've sort of given to work within and those kind of things. So it's not a great answer, but it's, that's sort of how it seems to happen. I think on that note, the note of chance and happenstance and accident and trust um, because there does need to be a lot of trust and a lot of conversations too and being able to say things that are sometimes difficult um, but know that if there's an outcome that you're trying to achieve, that that's part of the process. I think we'll end on that point. Um, I would like to thank you once again. Thank you to M Pavilion. Um, this is the first of their uh, regional projects and obviously I'd like to thank our partners uh, Geelong, who have been part of the conversations and the workshops as well. Um, the project will have an ongoing life. The map will be used in various different ways. As I say, if you're in Shepparton on Tuesday, you too can be part of the event at the, at the Connection. Keg, thank you very much thank once you. again, and thank you all for coming.